Shalom, and thank you for listening at BethEmmanuel.org. At Beth Emanuel, we are proclaiming the vital gospel message of the coming kingdom of heaven. If you share our passion for this message, please support this teaching ministry and messianic community with your prayers and financial contributions. To learn how, click on the Donate tab at BethEmmanuel.org. So it's a natural thing to do Haggai and Zechariah together. These two prophets are working in tandem with one another. And in fact, they're mentioned together in the book of Ezra. So that should give you a clue as to what kind of historical time period we are in. We are in the era of Ezra and the returnees from Babylon who came back when Cyrus, king of Persia, declared that Jerusalem should be the capital of the Jewish people and the Jewish people should be free to return to their holy city. And so that brought an end to the Babylonian exile, which had been prophesied and predicted by all the other prophets that we were studying heretofore. And now we've come to the other side of that. I think last week we studied Daniel. Do you remember learning Daniel together? Mm-hmm. One of the prophets of the exile. Well, not last week, but two weeks ago, because last week was Purim, of course. Anyway, so now we've come to the other side of all of that. We are back in Jerusalem. And, you know, this is something that the other prophets had also predicted. Not only did they predict there was going to be an exile because of all the idolatry and so forth, but they also predicted that Hashem would surely redeem his people, would surely take his people out of exile and return them to their land, gather them in from the four winds of and bring them back to their land and and restore them as one people with a restored temple. And remember Ezekiel's vision of how beautiful this temple is going to be, this amazing vision of this this grand temple. And there's going to be a restored priesthood. Ezekiel foresaw this priesthood. Jeremiah talked about how the, the priesthood, the sons of Aaron would be restored. And there's going to be a restored Davidic dynasty as well, a restored king, a Son of David will rule over all the people again, and there won't be two kingdoms anymore. It'll all be one kingdom under one Davidic king. That's the prophecies, that's the promises. So sure enough, it seems like it's happening. There's a redemption. We're allowed to go back to Jerusalem. We're allowed to return to Judah. However, there's a few things missing from this eschatological picture. We came back to Jerusalem and back to Judah anticipating King Messiah, anticipating the rebuilt temple, and and every man should be sitting under his own vine and fig tree, and we should be in the kingdom in the Messianic era by now. Instead, we get back there, and this kind of sucks. There's like uh, ruins and um, people, that the inhabitants of the land, the Kuthians, the Samaritans, I should say. The Samaritans are are giving, are giving us a, a hassle, and the walls of Jerusalem are tumbled down, and it's an indefensible situation. It's not so great. It's not so great. You know, we get the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, and in the midst of all this, that's the situation now. It's sort of what we could call disillusionment, a messianic disillusionment. Like, you know, things weren't so bad back in Babylon. <laughs> well, why did we come back here anyway? This, anyway, that's what, that's what we're speaking into. Ezra comes... And he says in Ezra chapter 5, when the prophets Haggai, the prophet Zechariah, the son of Edo, prophesied to the Jews 
who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel, who was over them, then Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel and Jeshua the son of Josadak arose and began to rebuild the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. That's Ezra chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. And it's a summary of the books of Haggai and the book of Zechariah right there. That's the plot line of Haggai and Zechariah. These two prophets working together, it seems, are going to encourage this disillusioned, exilic, returned community. <laughs> this, they're going to encourage them to build the house of Hashem. And they're going to encourage them that the final redemption is still coming. This, this isn't the whole thing yet. There's still more ahead. And so that's our story for Haggai and Zechariah. So we're going to look inside a little bit. Haggai chapter 1 tells us in the superscription, we get this right off the bat. It says, in the second year of Darius the king, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came by the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. All right, this is interesting because we already met these two characters in Ezra. Both of these guys were mentioned in Ezra. We have a little cast of characters to work out here. We'll do that in a moment. Let's start with in the second year of Darius. What's the second year of Darius? The best we can do is say that that's probably about 520 BCE. We're going to put this prophecy in 520. It's a long time before the New Testament era begins, isn't it? It's still 500 years. It's a lot of history that has yet to uh, elapse. So America was just not even a country. It was just colonies. That's going back. Yeah, 500 years ago. Yeah. Yeah, 500 years ago, right, which is shortly after Columbus. Sailed the ocean, right? Mm-hmm. This is a lot. That's a, that's a big chunk of time when you think about it. Mm-hmm. That's what they call the intertestamental period, where the the Tanakh kind of tapers off around here, and then we have this long period before we start getting the apostolic scriptures. It's not like nothing happened. <laughs> it's just that we don't have a lot of scripture from that period. So it says in the second year of Darius, 520 BC. On the first day of the sixth month. Now, a lot of times when you get these dates, they don't mean a lot, but sometimes they do. And especially, I think, with a guy with a name like Haggai. Because what is Haggai? That's, you know, we say Chag Sameach. That's a happy festival. A Chag is a festival. Haggai is just, you know, his his name means Festivus. (laughs) Or... He's a festival. It's a it's a festival name. You know, it's like it's it's a hint maybe. Haggai, Haggai, Haggai. And he does. We, we don't even get a name of his father or anything like that, like we do with many of the other prophets. Instead, there is a statement here that that refers to him as Haggai Malach Hashem. That is Haggai, the angel of Hashem, the angel of the Lord, or Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, more properly about all we know about him. What's the significance of the first day of the sixth month? The first day of the sixth month, that is the first day of the month of Elul. 
And on the first day of the month of Elul, we begin a season called the season of Teshuvah, the season of repentance, working up to the holidays, working up to Yom Kippur, right? So maybe there's some significance in that regard, that he's calling on this community to return to Hashem at the beginning of the season of return. All right, it says, In the sixth month, the word of the Lord came by the prophet Haggai, and his prophecy is intended for Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel. Let's start with this guy. Where do you get it? First of all, where do you get a name like Zerubbabel? This sounds like something from Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Zerubbabel. Like Zerubbabel Bibelbrox or something like this. They gave him his name. He used to be somebody else, and then they gave him his name. That's very likely that he has another name as well. Yeah. But I, I think I think Zerubbabel is Zerubbabel, so it would be like plant the the seed in Babylon. It would refer to the fact that he was born in Babylon, and he was born to the Davidic dynasty. In fact, his He's born to uh, Shealtiel. Shealtiel is born to Jeconiah, the king. Remember Jeconiah who went into exile, the king of the... Jeconiah went into exile. His name was also Coniah. We'll look at him a little further on. There's the shorter version of his name. Anyway, so what that means is, the point of what I'm saying is that Zerubbabel is the Davidic heir. He should be king. This should be King Messiah. If everything was going according to plan, we have the return from exile, just like the prophets have predicted, and they said that the son of David, the son of David would be king. This should be him. It should be Zerubbabel. He should be the king. But the Persians aren't allowing us to put a king in. The Persians are saying, it's okay for you to go back to the land of Judah. It's okay for you to rebuild your city, Jerusalem, as a province of the Persian Empire. But you can't have an independent monarchy. So you could be, you could call him a governor. Zerubbabel might be the governor or something like that, but he cannot be the king. Okay, and then this other character that he's prophesying to is Joshua, the son of Jehozadak. Now this is the high priest, the priest in the line of Aaron. Back in this verse from Ezra, we saw that he had a different name. Did you see that he had a different name? He was called Jeshua, the son of Jehozadak, or the son of Jehozadak. But here he's called Joshua. Why do you think he has two names? This is actually the difference between an Aramaic pronunciation and a Hebrew pronunciation of the same name. So in the Aramaic pronunciation, the hey falls out. So Yehoshua, Joshua, Yehoshua is shortened down to Yeshua which is the equivalent of Jesus, of course. Our master's name, Yeshua, is actually the Aramaic version of a longer Hebrew name, Yehoshua. So he's, that, that's, it's the same name. It's, it's not like two different names. It's the same name. This is the guy, Yehoshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, these are the two main characters because they represent everything that's missing. 
They represent the absence of a temple. They represent the absence of the restoration. They represent the absence of King Messiah. And therefore, they represent the absence of the Messianic era and the kingdom of heaven that the prophets have predicted. So they're going to be important in the prophecies of Haggai and Zechariah. All right, let's do some reading. Let's look inside Haggai here and do some reading. Verse 2, this is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say the time has not yet come for the Lord's house to be built. Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains a ruin? Now this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. You've planted much, you've harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes, but are not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. Go up into the mountains and bring down timber and build the house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. Now, for people who are against the temple, you know, they have the perspective of, well, you know, Yeshua came to destroy the temple, God hated the temple, this sort of thing. You hear this sort of thing out there. Uh, I Really, this is one of the verses I like to, to, to bring us to in, in that conversation. It's like, how many things are there in the Bible that Hashem says he actually takes pleasure in? There's not a lot. This is one of them. He takes pleasure in his house, in his temple, and he's honored in it. He says, you expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home, I blew away. Why, declares the Lord Almighty, because of my house, which remains a ruin, while each of you is busy with his own house. Therefore, because of you, the heavens have withheld their dew, the earth its crops. I called for a drought on the fields and the mountains, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, and whatever the ground produces on men and cattle and on the labor of your hands. So this is the, this is the message from the prophets to Zerubbabel and Shealtiel, the leaders of this community. Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, The high priest and the whole remnant of the pe people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the message of the prophet Haggai because the Lord their God had sent him and the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, gave this message to the people. I am with you, declares the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the, merit, and the spirit of Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of the whole remnant of the people, they came and began to work on the house of the Lord their God on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of King Darius. So just a week before Rosh Hashanah, they begin the actual construction of the house. On the, I'm just going to keep reading. Uh, on the 21st day of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Speak to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, to Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people, and ask them, Who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? But how does it look to you now? 
Does it seem to you like nothing? So you can imagine the construction has been going on how long here on the 21st day of the seventh month? They've gotten about a month in to this building project. But there's a significance to the 21st day of the seventh month. What is the significance to the 21st day of the seventh month? Does anybody know? It's one of these Chagim. It's in the seventh. There you go. I read that right there. There you go. Spot on. <laughs> Whoever wrote that. All that right. would be the seventh day, not the eighth. Yeah, it's the seventh day of nice. the festival of tabernacles. It is um, a day that we call Hoshana Rabbah. And it's um, an allusion then to 1 Kings, I think, chapter 8. Yeah, 1 Kings chapter 8 where we have the story of the dedication of the temple, Solomon's temple. It says in, in 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 65, after describing this long, long dedicatory prayer and all the ceremonies of the dedication of the temple in Jerusalem, it says, So Solomon observed the festival at that time, and all Israel with him, a vast assembly. They celebrated it before the Lord for seven days and seven more, for 14 days in all. And on the following day, he sent them away. This is a Sukkot story. And in this Sukkot story, the emphasis in describing the temple is on the glory of Hashem. That the glory of God fills the temple to such an extent that even the priests aren't able to stand and minister in the temple here in 1 Kings chapter 8 because of the intensity of the presence of God's glory in the temple. Now, fast forward to the year 520 B.C., the year of Haggai and Zechariah, Zerubbabel and Yehoshua, and this new temple project that one month into the rebuilding of the temple after the Babylonian destruction, they're still working among the rubble of that. And we have this prophecy. He says, who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? Solomon's temple. How does it look to you now? Does it not seem to you like nothing? I mean, they're thinking back to the Feast of Sukkot and the Festival of, of Tabernacles from, from before. These would, be, these would be like somebody who had been there, who had been present, would be senior citizens by now. 70 years of exile have gone by. They would have been children when, those, when they were going up with their parents to the festivals. But now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord, and work, for I am with you, declares the Lord Almighty. This is what I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains among you. Do not fear. And this is what the Lord Almighty says. In a little while, I will once more shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I'll shake all the nations, and the desired of all nations will come, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. And now we're looking ahead towards the kingdom. We're looking ahead towards the messianic fulfillment of these prophecies. The silver is mine. The gold is mine, declares the Lord. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house. So 
this, this temple is going to eclipse the glory of, of Solomon's temple, says the Lord Almighty. And in this place, I will grant peace, declares the Lord Almighty. All right, so have we seen this prophecy fulfilled yet? Well, not so much the peace part. But it's true that the second temple that they began to work on there, which is the temple of the days of the apostles, certainly eclipsed the glory of Solomon's temple in terms of its scope, size, magnificence, architecture, and so forth, especially by the, by the days of King Herod the Great. And so that, in that sense, the prophecy has already been fulfilled. But what Hashem is referring to here is not so much Herod's temple, I don't think, but he has in view the temple of Messianic Jerusalem that he's looking towards, which should have been, the second temple should have been that temple had we heeded the message of the kingdom of heaven and repented when the Messiah came. When he entered the, the triumphal entry, he came in the triumphal entry, that should have been King Messiah being received to take his, his place in Jerusalem. One more thing in Haggai, and then we'll get over to Zechariah, because I don't want to shortchange Zechariah. He's quite a bit longer than Haggai, you know. One more thing in Haggai, though, and this is another prophecy, this one just for Zerubbabel. Down in verse 20, it says, The word of the Lord came to Haggai a second time on the 24th day of the month. Tell Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, that I will shake the heavens and the earth. I will overturn royal thrones and shatter the power of the foreign kingdoms. I will overthrow chariots and their drivers, horses and their riders will fall, each by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord Almighty, I will take you, my servant, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and I will make you like my signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord Almighty. Now, to understand the significance of this prophecy, we need to know about the prophecy regarding his grandfather, Jeconiah. I'm going to take you back to Jeremiah. We already learned this when we learned Jeremiah, but it's possible that maybe among all these names you might have forgotten about this. So I'm going to take you back to Jeremiah chapter 22, beginning in verse 24. Remember this prophecy against Jehoiakim, same guy. As surely as I live, declares the Lord, even if you, Jehoiakim, this is Koniah, uh, even if you, Jehoiakim, son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were a signet ring on my right hand, I would still pull you off like a ring. He says, I pull it, I pull it off, off my finger. And I will hand you over to those who seek your life, those you fear, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and to the Babylonians. And I will hurl you and the mother who gave birth to you into another country where neither of you was born and there you will both die. You will never come back to the land you long to return to. Is this man Jehoiakim a despised broken pot, an object no one wants? Why will he and his children be hurled out, cast into a land they do not know? O land, 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 hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Lord says. Record this man as if childless, a man who will not prosper in his lifetime. For none of his offspring will prosper. None will sit on the throne of David or rule anymore in Judah. This is called the curse of Jehoiakim. The implication of the curse is that 
none of Jehoiakim's line will ever have a chance at uh, carrying on the Davidic dynasty or be in the Messianic line. However, the sages said, what happened with Jehoiakim was this. He repented in Babylon and Hashem reversed the evil decree. And we see that, we see the evidence of that in Haggai, where Haggai says to his grandson Zerubbabel, I will put you on like a signet ring. So it's like it's using it's using the same language of the curse in Jeremiah and inverting it. It's it's really a it, it is a it's an astonishing it's an astonishing play between texts here that we have between the prophecy of Jeremiah and the prophecy of Haggai across you know this a couple generations sort of a ping pong thing. It's a really remarkable thing. But there is Zerubbabel then becomes a really interesting character because. He's in both lines of Messiah. You know how we have two genealogies? One genealogy of Yeshua starts, uh, comes through Solomon, right? And one genealogy of Yeshua comes through David's son, Nathan. So it's in Luke, it's through Nathan. In Matthew, it's through Solomon. There's two different genealogies. Right, and they're separate. They're completely separate. Yeah, they're completely separate, except they converge at Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel ends up in both of them. Isn't that interesting? How did that happen? It's a very interesting problem. How could he be in both of these lines that are completely separate? It's a very interesting problem. The answer is that it's one of those lever at marriage maneuvers where you marry. He has a, a, a biological father. He has a biological line, but he also has an inheritance line by this um, lever at marriage. That's a traditional answer to the problem. One potential answer to the problem. Okay, let's go to Zachariah. That's enough about that. We don't want to get too distracted here. We have to learn about the man in the myrtle trees and whatnot. So Zechariah, chapter 1, verse 1. In the eighth month of the second year of Darius. So did you catch that? The eighth month of the second year of Darius. What, what were we? We were just in the second year of Darius. Sixth month. We started in the sixth month. And we made it into the seventh month. And by the end of the book of Haggai, we're still in the seventh month. So this is like picks up where Haggai left off. In the eighth month of the second year of Darius. The word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, son of Berechiah, the son of Edo. And now he gives a, a summary of the exile. The Lord was very angry with your forefathers. Therefore, tell the people, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Return to me, declares the Lord Almighty, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. Do not be like your forefathers to whom the earlier prophets proclaimed, this is what the Lord Almighty says, turn from your evil ways and your evil practices, but they would not listen or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Where are your forefathers now? And the prophets, do they live forever? But did not my words and my decrees, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, overtake your forefathers? Then they repented and said, the Lord Almighty has done to us what our ways and our practices deserve, just as he demanded to do. So on the 24th day of the 11th month, the month of Shavat, we just came out of the month of Shavat, right? I mean, we're in Adar right now, but Shavat was 
last month. So it's February. Okay. The month of Shavat, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, son of Berechiah, son of Edo. During the night I had a vision, and there before me was a man riding on a red horse. What I love about Zechariah is these opening visions. He's the first, well, not the first. Daniel was the first apocalyptic prophet, but he's he picks up that kind of Daniel's visionary dreams and apocalyptic experiences and carries them on. And so we have a lot of this language, this kind of uh, dream language, and angels appearing and angelic, you know, dreams, visions of angels doing strange things that will characterize apocalyptic literature. It says, during the night I saw, uh, and there was before me a, a man riding a red horse. He was standing among the myrtle trees in a ravine, and behind him were red, brown, and white horses. So what have you got here? You've got four horses. Four horses that are different colored, which should remind us of the four horsemen of the apocalypse, right? Yeah, that's this is where it comes from. I asked, what are these, my Lord? And the angel who was talking to me answered and said, I'll show you what they are. And the man standing among the myrtle trees explained, they are the ones the Lord has sent to go throughout the earth. And they reported to the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees, we have gone throughout the earth and found the whole world at rest and at peace. So these are archangels. They're representing archangels that are uh, reporting back. Then the angel of the Lord said, Lord Almighty, how long will you withhold mercy from Jerusalem, the towns of Judah, which you have been angry with these 70 years? So the Lord spoke kind and comforting words to the angel who talked with me. And the angel who was speaking with me said, Proclaim this word. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I am very zealous for Jerusalem and Zion, and I am very angry with the nations that feel secure. I was only a little angry, but they added to the calamity. So I was only a little angry with my people. They went too far. Therefore, this is what the Lord says. I will return to Jerusalem with mercy, and there my house will be rebuilt. The measuring line will be stretched over Jerusalem, declares the Lord. Proclaim further. This is what the Lord Almighty says. My towns will again overflow with prosperity. The Lord will again comfort Zion and choose Jerusalem. So what you've seen here is the return from exile from the perspective of the spiritual world now. This would have looked like on the other side. Then I looked up and there were before me four horns. I asked the angel who was speaking to me, what are these? So we see we start to have this interplay between the vision, the angelic tour guide, and the prophet who's seeing the visionary. He answered, these are the horns that scattered Judah and Israel and Jerusalem. Then the Lord showed me four craftsmen. I said, what are these? He, sa he said, these are the horns that scattered Judah and no so no one could raise his head, but the craftsmen have come to terrify them and throw, them throw down these horns of the nations who lifted up their horns against the land of Judah and to scatter the people. So I looked up and I saw a man with a measuring line. Does it, we, we learned Revelation together, so all of this should sound like familiar language. I asked, where are you going? He answered, to measure Jerusalem, to find out how wide and how long it is. The angel who was speaking to me left, and another angel came to meet him and said, run, tell that young man, Jerusalem will be a city without walls because of the great number of men and livestock in it. And I myself will be a wall of fire around it, declares the Lord, and I will be its glory within. See, at this time, Jerusalem is a city without walls. And so the prophet is encouraging the people. Remember, Nehemiah has to come and build the walls still. 
So Jerusalem is a city without walls. And the prophet's encouraging them. Hashem says he will be a wall of fire around this city. Let's go to chapter 3. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord. So we've already met this character. This is Yehoshua. This is the same Joshua. And Satan standing at his right side to accuse him. The Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? So you see, we're trying to rebuild Jerusalem. This So far, we're, we've been working in spiritual realms to try to bring about the rebuilding of Jerusalem and the rebuilding of the temple. And he's having these visions and they're kind of, they're moving forward. Now we're seeing Joshua, the high priest. He represents the priesthood. He represents the temple. And Satan is standing at his right side to accuse him. What does Satan, is, is he accusing him of? He's accusing him, uh, uh, he's accusing him of his sins. So this, this is not Joshua's sins personally, although there, there is a, there's a tradition that he let his sons marry foreign women. It actually says so in, in Ezra. So maybe that was the sins that he's being accused of. But specifically, uh, he symbolizes the whole people because he's the high priest. And so the sins of the nation are being lodged against him. And that is why he was dressed in filthy, filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, take off his filthy clothes. And he said to Joshua, see, I've taken away your sin and I will put rich garments on you. And then I said, put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him while the angel of the Lord stood by. And the angel of the Lord who gave this charge, the angel of the Lord gave this charge to Joshua. This is what the Lord Almighty says. If you will walk in my ways, keep my requirements, and govern my house, and have charge of my courts, I will give you a place among those these standing here. Well, who's the, these standing here is the, uh, the angelic hosts, right? Listen, O high priest Joshua and your associates seated before you, you who are men symbolic of things to come. I'm going to bring my servant. This is King Messiah when he says my servant, the branch. This is King Messiah. I'm going to bring my servant, the branch. See the stone I have set in front of Joshua. There are seven eyes on that one stone. And I will, grave, I will engrave an inscription on it, says the Lord Almighty. And I will remove the sin of this land in a single day. And in that day, each of you will invite his neighbor to sit under his own vine and fig tree, declares the Lord Almighty. So this is pretty fabulous stuff, isn't it? is very messianic. And who's the character at the center of this but this same Yehoshua, who is also called Yeshua? We see that he's bearing the sins of the people. He's bearing the sins of the nation. He's come through this exile, this torment of the exile. And he's moving into this place of uh, this resurrection, so to speak, this restoration. Uh, Hashem refers to him as a burning stick snatched from the fire which means if he had been left in the fire, he would have been totally consumed, but he was rescued from the fire. And he's, uh, he's told specifically that he is symbolic of something else, of someone else, of something that's yet to come. He and his associates, like Zerubbabel, are symbolic of some future fulfillment. And... 
Then there's this stone with seven eyes, which is a, a cryptic sort of thing because, you know, we picture a stone with seven eyes. It's like even a stone with one or two eyes would be weird. But <laughs> a stone with seven eyes. Remember, does anyone remember how this works? We, we learn, oh, right, right. In Revelation, we get to Revelation, it refers to the seven archangels. It symbolizes seven archangels when we get to Revelation. But on a very literal practical level, this is a stone that you use in architecture. And so the seven eyes, you would run your measuring lines out from these seven compass points, from the compass points of this stone to get your distances to mark out the foundations, where you're going to lay the foundations of your structure. So the eyes are actually the what you call sockets or grommets where you attach your measuring lines. Does that make sense to you? Yeah. Okay. So you'll see. You'll see, we'll see this stone again in a, in a, in a little bit here. Are they at uh, certain degrees? Yeah. 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 I'm sure they are. Yeah. We don't really have one anymore. This is this is speculation. This is what scholars speculate to try to say. What what is it that we're exactly looking at here? With stone, stone with seven eyes. Chapter 4, then the angel who talked with me returned and wakened me as a man is wakened from his sleep. And he asked me, what do you see? And I answered, I see a solid gold menorah with a bowl at the top and seven lights on it, seven lamps and seven channels to the seven, seven lights. And there's also two olive trees by it, one on the right and one on the left. And I asked the angel who talked with me, what are these, my Lord? He said, don't you know what these are? I said, no, my Lord. He said, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. So our previous prophecy we were talking about, Yehoshua, right? Now we're talking to Zerubbabel. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. So you see how these two characters, who, who does Zerubbabel represent? He represents the Davidic dynasty, the monarchy. What are you, O mighty mountain, before Zerubbabel you will become level ground? What does this refer to? Almighty mountain that's going to become level ground. Well, this is a biblical idiom for a mountain is an obstacle. Like, what, what is the obstacle that's keeping you from accomplishing the thing that you want to accomplish? That's like a mountain. By faith, we can move mountains. This is like to move, remove problems, to move obstacles. In the kingdom, every mountain is going to be lowered and every valley is going to be raised, right? Well, is that literally going to happen? Or does this mean that the obstacles to the redemption are going to be removed? I, I think, I think it's, it's the latter. That's what he's saying. It's like this obstacle. Right now, you're looking at this, you're saying, how can we restore Judah? How can we build the temple? How can we restore the priesthood? How can we restore the Davidic dynasty? How can we bring the kingdom? It's impossible. We're, we're under the Persians. We're in a bad situation here. Says, this is the mighty mountain. Don't worry about the mighty mountains, Rebbebel. Because it's not going to happen by might. You don't have any. It's not going to happen by power. You don't have any. It's going to happen by my spirit. What are you, almighty mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you will become level ground. Then he will bring out the capstone. See, we're building something here. We're building the temple. To shouts of, God bless it, God bless it. Then the word of the Lord came to me. The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this temple. His hands will also complete it. 
You see the relationship between Haggai who was saying, you need to build the temple and now we're building it. Then you will know what the Lord Almighty has sent me, that, that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you. Who despises the day of small things? Remember what Haggai said? Who here remembers the glory of the former temple? I'll, I'll tell you what, this new one is going to surpass the glory of the former temple. Likewise, we find the same prophecy here. Who despises the, small, the day of small things? Men will rejoice when they see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. These seven are the eyes of the Lord which range through the earth. So you can picture these seven plumb lines going out from, from this stone. Then I asked the angel, what are these two olive trees? Don't forget about what, we, what are these two olive trees on the right and the left of the lampstand? Again, I asked him, what are the two olive branches beside the two gold pipes uh, that pour out of the golden oil? And he replied, don't you know what these are? <laughs> it's pretty obvious. <laughs> don't you know what these are? No, my Lord, I said. So he said, these are two who are anointed or sons of oil, to serve the Lord of all the earth. Well, what does that mean? So you could read this. These are two messiahs to serve the Lord of all the earth. Well, who are we talking? Who is this all addressed to? Zerubbabel of the Davidic dynasty, which is when, when a king is made king, he's anointed with oil. And Yehoshua, the high priest, and when a high priest is made high priest, he's anointed with oil. So, so he's called the, the, the anointed priest. And the, the, the term anointed one is, uh, refers to the king or the priest. In this case, we have Zerubbabel and Yehoshua in view, but we're looking towards, we, we already told them, they're symbolic of things that are going to be people and institutions in the future. Let's take another look at a similar concept. Turn to Zechariah 6. And verse 9. The word of the Lord came to me, take silver and gold from the exiles, Haldai, Tovijah, and Jediah, who have arrived from Babylon. Go the same day to the house of Josiah, son of Zephaniah, take the silver and the gold and make a crown and set it on the head of the high priest, Joshua, son of Jehozadak. Tell him, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Here is the man whose name is the branch. Now, this is a big clue. This is a really big clue about King Messiah. I mean, that one, if you are the kind of person who underlines in your Bible, you should underline these words. Here is the man whose name is the branch. Chapter 6, verse 12. Because, I mean, basically what he just said, this guy has the same name as Messiah. And he will branch out from this place and build the temple of the Lord. And what's his name? His name is Joshua, Yehoshua, but we already saw that in Aramaic, that's Yeshua. That's why I said you should underline this. That's a big clue. And so one of the jobs of King Messiah, one of the jobs of this branch of Yeshua is to, to branch out from this place and build the temple of the Lord. This is one of the things King Messiah will do when he comes. He will rebuild the holy temple. He said, destroy this temple and in three days... I will build it. It is he who will build the temple of the Lord. He will be clothed with majesty. He will sit and rule on his throne. He will be a priest on his throne. And there will be harmony between the two. Now, ordinarily, a crown and a throne 
we associate with the monarchy, yes? Whereas here we're talking about a priest. It's like a priest who's a king. A priest who's a king doesn't really work, you know, because of uh, the kings are from the line of David, the priests are from the line of Aaron. However, there's another kind of priesthood that we learn about in the book of Hebrews, another order of priests that were never part of the Aaronic priesthood. And that is the priesthood of Melchizedek, Melchizedek, who was the king of Salem and the priest of God Most High. It says that he was a king and a priest, the king of Salem and the priest of God. It's in this order of priesthood that King Messiah becomes a priest. It's the teaching in the book of Hebrews. So he doesn't actually cite this passage in the book of Hebrews, but he has it in mind, this passage that we just read. So he will be a priest on his throne, and there will be harmony between the two. That, what two? Harmony between the monarchy and the priesthood. So the crown will be given to Haldai, Tobiah, Jedidiah, and Hen, the son of Zephaniah, as a memorial in the temple of the Lord. Those who are far away will come and help build the temple of the Lord, and you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you. This will happen if you diligently obey the Lord your God. So they did that. They built the temple. A couple of years later, Chapter 7 says, In the fourth year of King Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah on the fourth day of the ninth month, the month of Kislev. The people of Bethel sent Sherazar and Regamelech together with their men to entreat the Lord by asking the priests of the house of the Lord. So we see we already have the temple up. Uh, asking the priests of the house of the Lord Almighty and the prophets, Should I mourn and fast in the fifth month as I have done for so many years? So the question is, since the temple is rebuilt, should we continue to keep the fast of the month of Av, the fifth month? Because the fast of Av, Tisha B'Av, is a fast commemorating the destruction of the temple. So we're not sure what we should do here. Now that we've rebuilt the temple, should we, keep the, should we continue to fast on the fast of Av? All right. The answer is really long. In fact, the answer is, goes on for quite a quite a long prophecy. In essentially in this prophecy, he says the, the prophet says, All right, you need to know something. This isn't the final redemption yet. We have to go all the way over to chapter eight before we get the final answer. Uh, chapter eight, verse eighteen. Again the word of the Lord Almighty came to me. This is what the Lord Almighty says the fasts of the fourth, fifth, seventh, and tenth months will become joyful and glad occasions and happy festivals for Judah. Therefore, love, truth, and peace. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Many peoples and inhabitants of many cities will come, and the inhabitants of one city will go to another and say, Let us go at once to entreat the Lord and to seek the Lord Almighty. I myself am going. And many peoples and powerful nations will come to Jerusalem to seek the Lord Almighty and entreat him. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In those days, ten men from all the languages and nations will take firm hold of one Jew by the edge of his robe and say, Let us go with you. We've heard that God is with you. So that's where that prophecy is. So the answer is, there's still a redemption that's coming. And when the redemption comes, then you not only will you not have to fast on these fast days, the fast of the fourth month, that's the fast of Tammuz, the fast of the fifth month, the fast of Av, the fast of the seventh month, the fast of Gedalia, which we learned about when we learned Jeremiah, and the fast of the tenth month, which is the fast of Tevet. Not only will you not have to fast on these days, but they will be days of feasting and gladness. 
which is exactly what we need in Judaism. I, I felt like there weren't enough days of feasting and gladness already. And we just needed like four more, maybe four more of those. Do you notice the, um, the fast of Yom Kippur isn't in there? Why is that? Why, why is that? Why is the fast of the seventh month not Yom Kippur? It says the fast of the seventh month. Maybe, maybe you meant Yom Kippur. It's in a different level. The fast, of the, it's not a commemoration fast. The fast of Yom Kippur is a mitzvah. It's not, it's not uh, commemorating something like these other three fast days. Yeah, it's a moed. It's an appointed time. This entire question about fasting really seems to have inspired the rest of the oracles that are going to come out of Zachariah's mouth. And not everything is rosy for the future. Chapter 11, well, this, this, maybe chapter 9, I should. Chapter 9, we see King Messiah coming. Rejoice, it says in verse 9. Uh, Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you righteous, having salvation, gentle, riding on a donkey, on a colt, on the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots of Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem. The battle bow will be broken. So we see that there's war and battle ahead that King Messiah is going to have to deal with. Chapter 11, open your doors, O Lebanon, so that fire may devour your cedars. Wail, O pine tree, for the cedar has fallen. The stately trees are ruined. This is the verse, this is the passage that Yochanan ben Zakkai interpreted to mean that the temple was going to be uh, destroyed a second time. He foresaw that the second temple was was prophesied to burn because it says, open your doors, O Lebanon, that fire may devour your cedars. Well, the temple was made with the cedars of Lebanon. We find in chapter 12, the wars of Gog and Magog, all nations coming up against Jerusalem, the death of the Messiah, Chapter 12, verse 10, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. They'll look on me, the one they have pierced, and mourn for him. Remember, we, we learned this passage when we were learning Jeremiah. Jeremiah's laments over King Josiah. So we see the death of King Messiah involved in these wars of Gog and Magog. Awake, O shepherd, against my... Sh- Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, it says in verse 7. Against the man who is close to me. This is the death of King Messiah. Yeshua even quotes this passage. But then in chapter 14, just it's darkest before the dawn, right? That's where we are in chapter 14, where Gog and Magog have come up and taken the land. It says, I will gather all the nations to Jerusalem to fight against it. The city will be captured, the houses ransacked, the women raped. Half the city will go into exile. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as he fights on a day of battle, and his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives east of Jerusalem. The Lord, my God, will come and all the holy ones with him. And there's and now we enter into the kingdom and we have this vision of the coming kingdom and the messianic era. These are the prophecies, the program that our master had in view in his day and age as he saw Rome coming to fulfill these prophecies about Gog and Magog. He saw the Roman legions coming to fulfill these prophecies, and he saw himself as the one who was going to die at the hands of the Roman legions, as predicted here in these prophecies of Zechariah. Obviously, riding in on the donkey, the one about the sword striking the shepherd, and so forth. So now, 
We're just waiting for the other side of that, that his feet should stand on the Mount of Olives speedily, speedily soon in our lifetime. And we should get to the festival of Sukkot, which is where the book ends, bringing us full circle all the way back to the festival of Sukkot, all nations going up to Jerusalem to keep the festival in the Messianic era.